All right, welcome in to the Flyover Country podcast. I'm Scott Jennings. Really grateful for everyone who's with us. Please, if you're listening to this podcast and you like it and you want to help us out, go and find it in your uh, app, whichever way you're listening to it. Click the stars, click the reviews, whatever you can do to tell people, hey, this is a podcast that's worth my time and should be worth your time. Uh, we're grateful for your interactions on that front, and it helps us keep it going. This week, we have a great guest. We, we've had some really good guests on this show as we've as we've launched over the last few months. And I have to say, I was so impressed with the guests that we had this week. We have with us the governor of Oklahoma. He is a Republican. His name is Kevin Stitt. He was elected in November of 2018. Really interesting story. A young guy. I, I truthfully didn't know a ton about him. I'd heard of him. I didn't know a ton about him before we had him on the show this week. But as I was talking to him and, and looking at the results that he's had in Oklahoma, I have to say, um, if you're uh, looking for some uh, people that uh, may not be household names, but might be in 2024, 2028 and beyond, uh, I think Kevin Stitt uh, might ought to be on your bingo card. He was elected in 2018. He had a really interesting story. He was not a politician. He was an entrepreneur. He was a business guy. He funded a big mortgage company called Gateway with $1,000 and a computer. And now they're in 40 states. They do $20 billion a year in residential mortgages. A uh, lot of employees. Uh, it's headquartered in Oklahoma, and they have like 1,400 people. So this was a true business success story. And then he takes that story and transfers it and translates it into a political campaign. There was a huge primary for governor of Oklahoma, and he wound up coming out on top. Since he became governor... The results are real, and they are extremely impressive. He is engaged in a lot of government reform. He's worked with the legislature and his cabinet uh, to uh, really rethink a lot about Oklahoma state government. He has been a leader on energy. They have a true all-of-the-above energy uh, situation going on in Oklahoma, which we talk about on the podcast. Uh, he's been an education reformer. He's been a tax cutter. Uh, th this is a guy who, if you're like a conservative and you want conservative governance and not just performance, but you actually want conservative actions, activity, results, my advice is look at what Governor Kevin Stitt is doing in Oklahoma. So without further ado, it's my pleasure to present to you our conversation with the governor of Oklahoma on Flyover Country, Kevin Stitt. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. All right, welcome to the Flyover Country podcast. I'm Scott Jennings. Appreciate you being with us uh, this week. And as I mentioned at the top, our guest this week, special guest, is the governor of the great state of Oklahoma, Governor Kevin Stitt is here. Governor, thanks for being with us on Flyover Country. Hey, my pleasure. Looking forward to hanging out with you and uh, talking to America here on the Flyover Country podcast. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, um, uh, having been in the media e ecosystem for quite some time, it, it sort of dawned on me uh, several months ago that we have a lot of people on the coasts that have uh, a lot of influence over our media ecosystem. But those of us who live in Flyover Country, uh, which I uh, use the term affectionately, uh, may have some things to add as well. So when uh, when we had the chance to have you on, I jumped at it because you have become, I think, one of the most interesting and successful governors from flyover country. And you've done a lot of interesting and successful things uh, since you became the 28th uh, governor of Oklahoma in, in 2018. And I want to talk about 
some of those today. And frankly, I just I, I sort of want to start with how you got where you are today. You're not really a politician. Uh, you know, you're a business guy and you ran a really interesting campaign and you had a really interesting primary and a really interesting runoff. And you <laughs> even rejected the endorsement of the outgoing governor of Oklahoma in the process. And I, I just I find the whole story fascinating. And so uh, was thought you might reflect back on your on, on, on how you got to the governor's chair today. Sure. Absolutely. Well, I'm an Oklahoman through and through fourth generation Oklahoman and uh, went to grew up in Norman and went to Oklahoma State for college, got an accounting degree uh, and then moved to Tulsa uh, where I met my wife, Sarah. We've been married now for 23 years and we have six children. Uh, so big family. And uh, I started my company when I was 27 with a thousand dollars and a computer. And it's just been an American dream story. Today we have about 1700 employees uh, we do business in 40 states. It's the uh, banking business, mortgage industry. We're a commercial bank and we have a big servicing portfolio. So that's what I did uh, for 18 years or 20 years after I graduated, had my company for 18. And, uh, and I just noticed as I traveled to other states that my state was not performing up to the standards that I saw in some of these other states. And uh, I looked and saw who was running for governor and it just looked like more of the same, just career politicians President Trump inspired me with being the business guy that came in to, to run our country. And, and I think our forefathers, they never envisioned politics and politicians being a career and a profession. They thought that you'd be a successful business person or teacher or farmer or rancher, and you would leave your job and you'd go serve your state. And then you'd come back to the private sector. So that's exactly what I did. I had zero name ID. I had to Google when is the governor's race and uh, threw my name in the hat. I outworked everybody. I traveled the entire state and uh, got into a runoff and, and then won the runoff and, uh, and won the general. And, and uh, now I'm entering my se uh, senior year now. It's my fourth year now as governor running for reelection. And uh, it's just been a blast. It's been awesome bringing common sense to the state capitol and kind of an outside influence business person's approach. And it's just made all the difference in our capital. It really has. You know, I, I sense... Uh that there is a real hunger for the outsider, you know, businessman approach that you brought to your campaign and that you obviously are still uh, utilizing in, in your job today. Uh, I, I assume that that's the this is how you're going to run your reelection campaign, even though you're currently in office and you're running on, on, a, on a solid record of an incumbent. Uh, you, you still sort of give me the impression that you're running as as a with a business mentality and not a not a government mentality. How has that gone over in the Capitol? Because obviously capitals, the U.S. and state capitals are full of people who don't have that same kind of experience and frankly may be disdainful of it. How did it go over? Did you have to break a few uh, a few eggs when you got there? And, and how have people warmed up to it? Well, you know, the, the first year, 2019, it was kind of honeymoon. I got everything accomplished that I wanted to, that I set out in my state of the state agenda. Uh, my, my sophomore season, uh, I learned what a veto override was. <laughs> so uh, I kind of reinvented myself for my junior year. Uh, I'd, I'd grade myself. I probably went six and five my sophomore year. Came back my senior year, shook up my staff, did some things differently, uh, built better relationships with the House, the Senate. And then we went 14 and 0 my, my junior year. Just had a great session, got everything accomplished we wanted. Uh, but but really running state government is much different than a business. 
um, you you have to you have to approach the legislature. That's kind of like your board of directors, and um, we make these decisions, and we have to go work through the House and the Senate, their leadership, and and uh, being around kind of how the Capitol works now. I realize that, and and have done a much better job of learning to work through through the uh, the House, the Senate, and we've got tremendous momentum now going into our senior season. So obviously, like all governors, one of the biggest issues you've had to deal with is coronavirus and uh, how to how to react to it. Uh, but at the same time, not totally derail your state's you know economic situation. Was wondering if you might. Uh, I think you were the first governor to get coronavirus, so I'm not mistaken. You you, <laughs> you got to jump on everybody on on it. Um, but uh, but I just thought you might want to reflect on how you approached it. Yeah. What you think you got right, what you what you in retrospect maybe think you got wrong, and and really where we are today, because I I have a real sense that the people are just done with this, and they're they're certainly not into the mandates, and uh, and certainly not into the concept of having our economy or our schools or anything else derailed at this point. So, from your perspective, where are we, and uh, and and uh, what kind of grade would you give yourself on overall COVID response? You know, um, I would give myself an A on, on how we've handled everything. And I'll, I'll give you examples why. We were the first state to fully reopen June 1st of 2020. I was one of, of just a handful of governors that did not declare a mass mandate statewide. Um, I focused on three things. You know, in business, you can't make decisions based on one set of facts. And I said, you know, the health and safety of Oklahomans uh, is number one. I said, but also we have to part of the health and safety of Oklahomans is the health and safety of our kids, keeping them safely in school. So from the very beginning, we set out the, the directive. Well, I wanted all kids in school. We knew they were safer there. So 98, 99 percent of our schools were open the entire time. Um, we can talk about the couple school districts that shut down that we hammered every single day until they reopened. Um, but the other thing is the health and safety of our businesses and keeping them safely open. And, and the government should not pick winners and losers. Um, the, the only thing that's not essential uh, is if it's not your business, right? Everything is essential if it's where you get your paycheck and, and uh, where you put your heart and soul into running your company uh, or your employees work there and you want to take care of them. So now contrast where we are today. Oklahoma has a budget surplus. Uh, it's amazing feeling in Oklahoma. I mean, we every time my friends travel out of state and they go to the East Coast, the West Coast, they, they were like they're like governor. It's like the Oklahoma appreciation tour when we go out of state. We realize how good we have it in Oklahoma. Literally, we have been fully reopened. There has not been any restrictions uh, since early in June of 2020, June 1st of 2020. And so um, we have a budget surplus. Uh, our lowest unemployment in state history, third lowest in the country right now, is 2.5%. I have the largest savings account in our state history, over $2 billion. We were able, because we looked at what the Biden administration was doing on raising taxes and the inflation at 40-year high, and Americans struggling uh, to pay more at the, at the gas pump or at the grocery store. So I cut taxes this past year for everyday Oklahomans. Uh, we restored the earned income tax credit which was for the working poor, because I wanted to incentivize. There's about 200,000 Oklahomans to incentivize them to get back to work. Contrast that from a blue state. New York, 6.6% unemployment. Uh, they're reporting they could have a $63 billion deficit through 2024. You know how much different that is than going into my state of the state 
talking about how much we're going to save and what we're going to give back and invest in different things versus what we have to cut. It's just night and day. And, um, and, and so I'm just telling you, uh, I love what Governor Ducey said. Uh, we were together at, at, a, at, a, at a conference and he said, imagine this, Kevin. <clears throat> he said, 50 years ago, Democrat politicians stood in the doorway of our schools and they refused to let minority kids in. He said, today, those same Democratic politicians are standing at the, at the doorway of the schools, refusing to let kids out. So we're moving school choice forward in Oklahoma. We want more options for kids. Uh, but the atmosphere in Oklahoma, uh, I mean, we can talk about commerce and, and how well we're doing there, but uh, it's just totally different feeling. Uh, and, and we feel really proud of how we've handled everything over the last two years. Yeah, your economic success story is really unquestioned. I mean, the unemployment rate is so low, and the fact that you were able to cut taxes for everybody in this process, I think, is is noteworthy. You know, as you describe what you did and then contrast it with blue states, I, I do think one of the stories of this pandemic is how Americans experienced all this differently, depending on who the governor of their state was, depending on did they live on the coast or did they live in, in the middle of the country, and and I think living in a in a state like Oklahoma with a Republican governor who was engaging in common sense uh, policies, it obviously ultimately led to better economic outcomes and less disruption. I do want to go to the school district issue because you were adamant that schools should be open. And, you know, of course, saying something like that a year ago was enough to get you kicked off Twitter these days. <laughs> the healthcare regime in Washington and, and in other places has come around to the idea that, hey, maybe we ought to have the schools open. I wonder what the Democratic National Committee's polling must look like for all of these folks to have changed their tune on this. How hard did you have to fight to get the schools open? How 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 hard did you have to fight against entrenched interests over some of these uh, school issues? Because, uh, you know, in states across the country, when people like you show up and say, I want to do I want to keep the schools open, I want to have school choice. You, you run into you run into people, and uh, I just was curious about your battles and, and how hard was it to fight against it. Yeah, you know, I mean, there, there's certainly battles. We have local control in Oklahoma, so we have local school board elections. Two of our largest school districts, Tulsa and Oklahoma City, uh, like many of the major cities, um, kind of controlled. Some of their school boards were controlled by uh, some of the big unions, and and they pushed their folks and got them on those boards. and And I think it's waking up parents all over America. People are contacting us and they're running for their school boards. They realize these elections matter. And, um, you know, but but if anybody was governor uh, and, and you could listen, listen into some of those calls that were coming into my office last year from single moms and single dads, and it would break your heart. I mean, they would tell me, they'd say, Governor, I have to go to work during the day and my first grader and third grader are stuck at home by themselves. We don't have good internet at the house. And there's no way they're learning how to read via Zoom. It's a joke. And it would break your heart. My kids were in school the whole time. 98% of the kids in Oklahoma were in school. But some of those school districts uh, that were shut down, it just broke your heart. Uh, because just across the street in a zip, different zip code, those kids were in school. And so we passed in Oklahoma at what we call open transfer. to not So the government is not going to stand in the way and allowing that parent to make a choice where their kid's going to go to school for whatever the reason. Uh, and we also passed some funding formula reform where that money will follow the student now. Uh, so again, super basic common sense things. Let's let parents have more options. If you're going to shut the school down, let's let that parent take their kids somewhere else. 
Yeah, I find with with uh, with uh, governors and elected officials like you who who come from a, a business background that you really do tend to put education front and center because you know how important it is in in running a business, finding people who have the education and skills necessary to uh, to be part of your business. And you've done that. Uh, I think you initiated the first ever audit of your state department of education, which I think was uh, a, a nod towards the need for transparency in our education bureaucracy. The teachers unions were, were very unhappy. You mentioned uh, uh, some of the reforms uh, on school choice. Um, can you talk a little bit about why you focus on education so much? But then I'd love to hear your views on the National Republican Party. I agree with you. I think people are waking up on education. We obviously saw it in the Virginia governor's race as well. Do you see what you and Glenn Youngkin talked about and Tim Scott and others, do you see what you all are talking about as a blueprint for how the national party should use this in the midterms and then in the presidential campaign? You know, I, I really do. I mean, you look at look at Glenn Youngkin's race and, and I met him. We had dinner together in D.C. before he decided to run. And uh, he was a business guy, first time to run for office, just like me. So we had a lot of simul- similarities. And so I was super proud of him and and um and I, I think it just highlights, um, you know, the, the need for the Republican Party nationally really to own this issue. Uh, and just to, like the environment or an energy policy, which I'd love to get in and talk about as well. Uh, we should not give that over to the other side. We have the winning message. We have the winning policies. We know what's right. We know what's fair. We know what parents want. And uh, we just need to articulate that better. So applaud Glenn Youngkin and uh, what he did in the Virginia race. Uh, and we saw these parents wake up. They don't want big government to tell them what to do. If the majority of the people think one way, uh, is it OK to force everybody to think that way? And I find that very troubling. I think our Constitution protects the minority's viewpoint. And, the, you know, we have the right as parents to educate our kids. God gave kids to parents, not to the government. And that's something that sometimes the left gets out of whack. And they think that, uh, uh, you know, the union should call all the shots on, on how we educate our kids. And you're seeing parents buck up to that. And that's what I believe we have to ultimately do is we need more options. Let the parents take their, their money and go to any school they want. Why do we have people standing in the door trying to hold kids back from going to a better school? It's unbelievable to me. And I mean, you see in Florida uh, why uh, Governor DeSantis won the first time is because he was embracing more options. Uh, Jeb Bush has been a, a big mentor uh, to me on some of his policies he did in Florida on education reform 20 years ago. And now you're seeing the testing scores uh, really reflect some of the policies he put in place. Over half the kids in Miami-Dade County go to school now outside of their assigned zip code, whether it's charter schools, private schools, public schools. We're giving parents more options. And uh, charter schools, I I like to remind people, they're public schools with just private management. So we in Oklahoma, we pass laws to give more equal funding to charter schools to encourage more of them to spring up. I mean, that's good. More options are good for parents. You know, you, you have really leaned into this issue, you know, for, for a, a good chunk of the last 20 years, you know, some Republicans shied away from it because they thought, uh, well, if we get into a debate over education, this just we're, we're fighting on their, uh, you know, on the, the Democratic terms, not on our terms. But I think what we've learned lately is that this is an issue on which the Republicans could be on offense and not be sort of stuck in their mentality that we're on defense here. 
that it's a real winning message. You know, on another front, you signed into law uh, a ban on teaching critical race theory in Oklahoma schools, which I think is going to continue to be a huge message for the Republican Party. And and I think, you know, the more parents that learned about uh, you didn't have as much of it in Oklahoma, but the more parents who learned about the curriculum that was going on in their kids school, the more they became outraged and wanted to know what's being taught, why is it being taught, and sort of what is the desired outcome here. I was wondering if you might uh, reflect on that particular bill. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And and so, and I encourage everybody to actually pull up the bill in Oklahoma and, and read it. And I met with uh, um, tons of opposition to the bill. I sat in my conference room, my cabinet room. I invited uh, different groups in that, uh, um, you know, we're, we're for that. And I said, you explain to me what in this bill is wrong. And it's basically, I was the first governor to ban what we called critical race theory in Oklahoma, or I was the first one to ban it in the country. Um, but basically what that is, is it simply says this, people politicize everything. It simply says that we're not going to teach that one race or one sex is superior to another race or one se- or sex. We're not going to teach that a first grader is somehow responsible or should feel bad about something that happened 100 years ago. And so, again, to me, it was, uh, um, you know, just, again, common sense. It says we will teach history. We will teach, uh, what, you know, a couple things that happened here in Oklahoma. We had a race massacre that happened in Tulsa in 1921. We teach that in the Oklahoma curriculum. We teach... Uh, uh, a Clara Looper sit-in in Oklahoma City. So we teach history. We teach math. We teach science. We're not shying away from any of that, but we're simply not going to teach the bent that there is one sex that somehow is inferior or uh, um, is responsible for something that happened 100 years ago. Hey, I, this is another example, and I think it's what makes you a really interesting uh, story for Republican governors right now. You were you were on the front edge of this. I think it, you mentioned you were one of the first, if not the first governor in the country to to actually do it. And now you see Republicans across the country uh, wanting that same kind of leadership in their uh, out of their own governors in their their own states. Let me um, first of all, let me just remind everyone who we're talking to. The governor of Oklahoma, uh, Kevin Stitt, is here, and we're talking about his successful first term as governor of a big uh, uh, flyover country state. I want to shift focus to the border crisis. Um, we have the border is a disaster. I mean, it. you know, this is one of Joe Biden's many failures and the border is a huge disaster. And you're not a border state, but like a lot of other states on the interior, you suffer when the border is a disaster because people and drugs are flowing across the border and they wind up in Oklahoma. Maybe talk to us a little bit about how you responded to that, because you're, you're obviously feeling the impacts in your state. Yeah. Well, I mean, first off, I want to say this. I mean, we 12 percent of Oklahoma's population are Hispanic. Uh, tons of economic benefits, 7.9 billion in economic impact from the Hispanic community. I love the Hispanic community in Oklahoma. Uh, they have my values. They have Oklahoma values. They are hardworking, entrepreneurial, God-fearing, family-focused, uh, they're Republicans. They all should be Republicans because we believe in the same things. Uh, we believe in freedoms. We believe in personal responsibility. We believe in entrepreneurship, capitalism, uh, great educations for our kids. So want to say that first and foremost. Um, the, the, so what happened was uh, 26 governors. Think about this. I want America to know, hear this. 26 governors. We sent a letter to President Biden. So over half of the states in the United States of America asking for a meeting and crickets, nothing. 
He never even responded. Can you imagine a company having over half the employees or half of the customers or whatever you wanted to say, whatever analogy you can use, and the CEO refusing to even respond to them? Uh, so that's what happened. So Governor Abbott invited myself and 10 other governors to the border to put our eyes on it. And I wanted and I owed it to Oklahoma to find that out. And so we went down there and we had a great uh, tour. I met with Border Patrol officers. The biggest, the biggest change is a policy that doesn't ch- cost Americans anything. It's free. And that would simply be that, hey, if you want to migrate to the U.S., you have to stay in Mexico until your court date. That was Trump's policy. But because it was Trump's policy, Biden canceled it day one. And it was right. a total make sense policy. So now all you have to do is touch the border of the United States of America. And it's very easy to do, by the way. Uh, it's it's uh, you can walk across the river, you can swim across in, in, in certain areas and the border officers then have to release them into the U.S. with all the benefits, with all the health benefits. And then they give you a, hey, come back to court in two years and we may or may not um, you know, deport you. Well, nobody's coming back. It's a free ticket. That's creating mass migration to the border. And that one policy change is all that needs to happen uh, would slow down that influx uh, to our southern border. And I'm telling you, Governor Ducey, Governor Abbott, um, they're having to fight this alone when this is a federal uh, government responsibility. And unfortunately, President Biden and the Democrat operatives are politicizing this and they're not doing what's right for America. Yeah, I, I think they're really misjudging this issue. First of all, I, I think they pay very little attention to it. I mean, uh, obviously, Kamala Harris was put in charge of it and you know she's paid no attention to it. And I think where they're really misjudging this is that people are starting to learn the horrors of all the fentanyl that's coming across the southern border and winding up in all these states here where I am in Kentucky. Uh, you know, Rob Portman in Ohio and I had, were on together the other day. He was talking about the impacts on Ohio. All, all these states on the interior are being flooded with these drugs that are killing people. And that you're not immune from that in Oklahoma. And I think the inattention to that is disgraceful. But I also think it's politically really damaging. And I think the, the Biden administration's misjudging it terribly. Yeah. Well, we, we you're exactly right. And I, I mean, my law enforcement has told me all the drug busts, all the fentanyl, all the illegal drugs coming in are through our southern border. And the rest that we're making in Oklahoma is kind of a crossroads. We have I-35 and I-40. So major, major crossroads moving drugs throughout uh, that's coming. And, and uh, the Border Patrol officers um, were telling me, you know, that policy change is the number one thing they need. Obviously, the wall is super important because that funnels, they know exactly where the drug traffickers are going to go instead of the wide open, uh, you know, thousands of miles that they have to patrol. So those are two things that uh, President Trump had right. All right, let's talk about a topic you mentioned earlier. And I think uh, uh, it's it's a really another success story for you. And that is your all of the above approach for energy. Uh, in Oklahoma, you are number six in oil number four in natural gas, number two in wind energy. You're doing it all uh, out there. And sort of the, the idea of an all of the above energy strategy is something that the, the, the conservatives and the Republicans have embraced uh, f- for quite some time. You're putting it into practice. Tell us a little bit about the energy business in Oklahoma and, and why you're having so much success. Yeah, well, first off, I mean, I'm glad you, you mentioned those stats. We're so proud of our all of the above approach. You know, we're, we're proud of our oil and gas industry. We have been a pioneer and innovator in energy uh, for, for over a century now. 
Uh, and we're, but what people don't realize about Oklahoma is we're number uh, two in wind energy production. And over 40% of our, our energy production comes from renewables. We're one of only four states that can say that, over 40%. And we've done that without mandates, without dictating anything from the federal government or the state. Uh, we've done it because we allow <clears throat> entrepreneurs and innovation and a free market in Oklahoma. It's been amazing. But that's why we're 11 out of the last 13 quarters we are the cheapest electricity cost to the consumer and the manufacturer. So it's created tremendous uh, economic boom for Oklahoma as manufacturing is looking to move to our state. <clears throat> Google, for example, has their largest data center in Oklahoma, and it's because of our energy cost. And they're able to buy all the renewable energy, which is something that's important to them. And that's fantastic. We, we love that. We love selling cheap, clean energy uh, to uh, manufacturing. And also we're a net exporter to what's called the Southwest Power Pool. It's a group of 17 states that we participate in. One of the few states that produces more than we need. And therefore, Oklahoma didn't have the problems when we had this polar vortex that happened last year. Uh, right. We didn't have the blackouts that some of the other states did because we were an all of the above approach. Uh, one thing that's interesting, I love to share with uh, with uh, uh, with young people, especially, <clears throat> is last year during that polar vo vortex, the wind uh, turbines were frozen and the gas coming out of the wellhead was frozen. It was so cold in Oklahoma for an extended period of time. We couldn't get gas to our generation plants. And so guess what? <clears throat> Coal that's normally 10 percent went to 55 percent during that time period. And I tell young people, had we not had coal in Oklahoma, you would not have been able to watch TikTok for two weeks. <laughs> and they kind of get it because you have to explain when you plug in your cell phone. I mean, where does that energy come from? Yeah. It comes from natural gas. It comes from coal. It comes from wind. Uh, it comes from hydro. And, and we're also having a big play for hydrogen right now. We've got a huge plant started in, uh, uh, in Ardmore, Oklahoma. Uh, we're trying to plant the flag that we want to be, um, uh, you know, we want to be the future for energy production and innovation for the next hundred years. And it seems to me we've had sort of a real pullback. I mean, under Trump and, and, and for many years leading up to Trump, you know, America was on its way to, to energy independence. You know, we seem to have finally gotten our heads around the idea of why that's a good idea. Biden, I think there's been a real pullback with Biden uh, on on Americans, uh, America's energy success story. You've had some meddling in, uh, in in what you're trying to do out there from the federal government. In fact, I think you ended up uh, suing the Biden administration over their attempts to regulate your mining operations out there. Maybe talk about why it's better to let governors and states do what they can do than have federal meddling in energy because you, you have so much opportunity, but it, but it can go away if the federal government won't get out of the way. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a great point. I mean, I, I think it's important for us to remember that since 1973, uh, every administration, Republican or Democrat, uh, started with Nixon, had an energy independence policy until this administration. We've always wanted to uh, produce what we would, could consume in the U.S. and then sell to our allies and friends. Right now, uh, you're seeing a president ask to uh, ask our enemies, people that don't really like us very much, to increase production. And by the way, uh, their environmental policies and the way they produce 
uh, are, it's not as clean of energy as what we do in Oklahoma. So we have, we have the producers right here in, in our country uh, to produce energy that we, that we, that we need. And it's just preposterous that we're uh, killing the Keystone pipeline, that we're banning drilling on federal lands. We're making permitting so ridiculously hard. And guess what? The same, the same policies and restrictions they do, it actually helps oil and gas. The margins go up. The supply, it's, it's like these people can't, don't understand basic economics. Uh, so the oil and gas industries are getting healthy very, very quickly under this Biden administration. Um, so anyway, that's, that's point number one. Uh, but yeah, we have, you talk about the Department of Mines, uh, the Supreme Court in, in summer of 2020, uh, biggest thing to hit our state, they basically said that the reservations still exist. And yeah. so that's thrown our, 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 the sovereignty of the state of Oklahoma in turmoil. Like who has jurisdiction in eastern Oklahoma where we historically did not have reservations ever since statehood? Uh, we didn't have reservations. And so now by that one decision by the Supreme Court, we now are having who has the right to prosecute crimes, who has the right to tax, whose citizens do do Indians or Native Americans have to pay tax? And by the way, I'm a fourth generation Oklahoman. I'm actually a member of the Cherokee tribe. And um, uh, but it's just preposterous to think about certain races not paying taxes and then certain races having to pay taxes. That's literally what we're battling right now in the state of Oklahoma uh, on the eastern part of our state. Yeah, you're, you're uh, referencing the uh, 2020 ruling, the McGirt ruling. I mean, you, you have called this the most pressing issue facing uh, the state of Oklahoma. I mean, it is it is really flipped on on its head. You know, a lot of what you think about in terms of your justice system and and your other you know state systems out there, and, and as you mentioned, the, the sovereignty of the state. Where do you stand on this right now? What is Oklahoma doing uh, to try to to try to bring some sanity to this? Because it, it struck. I mean, it was a strange ruling. You had four liberal justices, and then. Justice Gorsuch in there too, which was um, for a lot of conservatives, which was strange. Where do we stand now, and what's what's Governor Stitt doing about it? Sure. Well, I mean, you're you're exactly right. I mean, you can look. Wall Street Journal has written, you know, several several editorial pages regarding this, and one of the headlines I remember was Gorsuch tears up Oklahoma, and that's exactly what he did. He literally pulled uh, Oklahoma, the sovereignty of our state, and the way that we've operated since 1907. And really throw, throwing it on his head. And um, there's now a checkered board of jurisdiction in eastern Oklahoma. Um, and so you've got the criminal aspect. And so I want to I tell, I want to kind of give you one example. So there was a case in uh, Oklahoma called the Daniel Vivier case. And Daniel Vivier, two other guys, really bad guys, beat an 85-year-old man almost to death, stole his truck, robbed him, left him for dead. They were sentenced by the district attorney to 20 years in prison. Daniel Vivier got out of prison because of his race. The other two are still in prison. So now you have a situation that because somebody was part native like myself or about 400,000 Oklahomans, and then you have Hispanics, African-American, anybody of a different race has a potential different punishment. I mean, it's preposterous. Uh, taxes right now, uh, you have 5,000 taxes protest before the tax commission where literally people are checking the box they don't live in the state of Oklahoma. They live on Indian reservations, so they don't have to pay taxes. But yet they go to our same schools. They drive on our same roads. And I think it's important to realize when you think about flyover country, some people think, well, Oklahoma is like uh, it, it just must be just wide open. Yeah. This is like a tribe coming back to Manhattan 
because <laughs> this is happening in downtown Tulsa where there's a million people right. and saying, hey, uh, down, coming back into Manhattan saying we don't have to follow zoning. We don't have to pay state or city income tax because this originally was a reservation. That's what it feels like uh, to Oklahomans. And so where we stand right now, our attorney general has probably 50 cases back before the Supreme Court saying, hey, you've got to give us um, you, you've got to limit this. You need to give us further clarification. Uh, or you need to overturn it. And overturn it means just go back to the way we've operated since 1907. That if it's trust land, if it's if it's land in reserve owned by the tribe, then we know what the rules are. But you can't say now all of eastern Oklahoma, half of our state uh, is a new reservation that's owned by you or me or this corporation or Walmart or this. And they're saying it's all reservation. It's just preposterous. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, I, I can only imagine sort of you're trying to plan for the chaos uh, around this ruling and uh, it makes being governor uh, or, you know, any other state official in Oklahoma really difficult. And and it, it is sort of an example of, of how the federal government, I think, can really can really muck things up for states. You've been sort of really aggressive at pushing back on federal overreach I, uh, during the pandemic. Um, you I think we're we're one of the frontline governors on this, uh, pushing back on on some of the mandates. You uh, uh, were, I think, uh, one of the leaders on speaking out against teachers being fired over the vaccine mandate and other things. I, sort of, uh, I mean, these are real Tenth Amendment issues, you know, and uh, and and Federalist issues. Sort of, is did you anticipate getting into these fights when you became governor, or when you became governor, you realized, oh my gosh, these are some of the most consequential fights I can be in. Yeah, you know that that. When I was running for governor, I remember thinking, you know, what if I win, what, what does the Lord have me here for? I mean, what's going to hit my state that I'm going to protect us from? I had no idea COVID was going to hit, this McGirt decision. Uh, I'm the lucky governor that has to uh, try to hold my state together and fight back against, uh, you know, the jurisdictional questions. Um, but speaking of those mandates, I mean, right now we are seeing leaders of other states and obviously the president you know, think it's perfectly normal or even admirable to sacrifice our freedoms for something else. And I don't believe we should sacrifice our freedoms at any cost, not public health, not public safety. We, our freedoms are the most fragile thing we have. President Ronald Reagan would talk about that. Freedom is not, is never more than one generation away. We have to fight for that. And so when I see a president by executive order dictating and mandating what happens at every single company in Oklahoma and across America, we say, wait, time out. Our constitution does not give the federal government that type of power. Uh, we were worried about a federal, our four founders were so worried about a federal heavy, heavy handed dictate mindset. Uh, that's what we were fought wars over. And so, yes, absolutely. I fought back and, and we're like, listen, we're going to protect our way of life and our companies in Oklahoma. Uh, on the same sense, you know, I had people say, well, Governor, you need to pass a law that, that keeps companies from doing a vaccine mandate. And I said, well, that's the same thing. Companies right. should choose. If a company wants to do that, then you let the free market people to decide to go somewhere else. What we will absolutely stand against is the federal government coming into Oklahoma and saying every single company has to do this. Listen, if I give if I if I lined up 10,000 people and told everybody to drink orange juice in the morning, there's going to be some people that are allergic, uh, that upsets their stomach. Uh, they don't like orange juice. 
there's a problem with it. And I'm using an analogy just to make it, there's not a one size fits all approach. Uh, we believe in freedoms and we believe uh, in, in the health and safety of Oklahomans, but we're going to let them make that decision between themselves and their physicians. Yeah. And, and with the Omicron variant and what we know about the vaccines now, which is they're very effective at keeping you from dying, but they don't prevent transmission anymore. And I, I think what Biden was getting at at the beginning was, well, if I can vaccinate everybody through mandate, we won't transmit it. Well, that's over. That's out. And so it, it strikes me these mandates don't make any sense anymore, yet they continue to go down this road. But it does beg a question about the the hospitals in Oklahoma. And given what's going on with, with Omicron, uh, are the hospitals holding up well? Is everything is, is everything okay with the healthcare delivery system, despite what we're seeing in the surge of uh, the Omicron variant? You know, we are. Um, our hospitalizations have not been back where they were in the peak in January, uh, about half, about 60 percent of where we were in January, even though our numbers are are spiking just like everywhere across this country right now. And to your point, Omicron uh, is much more prevalent. It's easier transmittable and uh, but it's not near as uh uh, deadly. We're not seeing the people going to the hospital as much. And now for the first time, and we've been saying this for a long time to our media, and we got laughed at a year ago, not everybody in the hospital is in the hospital because of COVID. And not everybody that died, died because of COVID. Right. Uh, they might have died with COVID or because they may be in the hospital with COVID. And now you're starting to see people talk about that. And our own numbers in Oklahoma, about yesterday in my COVID briefing, 45% of our hospitalizations were there with COVID and not because of COVID. In other words, they were there in the hospital for a broken arm or broken leg, or uh, they were having, uh, you know, uh, diabetes, whatever the treatment was. And we test them. And with Omicron now being much more uh, transmittable, we're seeing more and more people that are testing with COVID. Yeah, this was this is the kind of data that again I think it's a, another sort of different experience for people like you, you know, people living out in middle America. We sort of intellectually and instinctively knew uh, that some of these numbers didn't make a ton of sense last year because people were being admitted and been being tested incidentally. And now you see the health regime in Washington finally admitting this and you know, folks are like, yeah, no kidding. We, we've known this for a couple. I think it's infuriating, frankly, to the average American who's lived with all these, you know, restrictions and mandates. And I'm trying to do everything you're asking me to do, but you're not shooting straight with me about the about the realities. Governor, as we uh, uh, come near the end of our uh, podcast time today, there was one other uh, topic that I thought you might want to discuss because you've, you've made some news on it. It's a topic of criminal justice reform. Uh, you've been a uh, outspoken on it. Uh, you had a, a, a pretty high profile case, the case of Julius Jones. You knocked his sentence, death sentence down. Um, you've you've had some success with lowering your incarceration rates. I thought it'd be interesting to hear from you on how you arrived at, at some of these thoughts and uh, and what your values are on overall posture regarding criminal justice reform. Yeah. Well, first off, you know, when I looked and started looking at all the different categories in state government on where we're good and where we're where we're behind other states, one of them that stuck out, we were last place in the country when I took over in incarceration rates. We incarcerated more men and women than any other state. And so uh, I looked at that and I said, listen, uh, we need to at least be 25th. We want to be smart on crime. We want to lock up the people that we're afraid of, not the ones that we're just mad at. So we've moved the needle. We've gone from 50th to 45th with some policy changes. Um, we actually have lower recidivism rates right now. We're funding more diversion programs. Uh, my wife, we signed what's called the Sarah Stitt Act, 
which actually brings a lot of the uh, programs behind the wire before folks get out of prison. Uh, most of the people are going to get out of prison at some point. So uh, we brought in getting them a driver's license before they got out. What type of uh, job training do they need? What type of licensing do they need? What type of child care? Uh, how do they get their kids back from VHS? So we're looking at that as a holistic approach. Uh, really proud of how we're leading. That's another thing that I don't think that the I think the Republicans need to lead in on. Uh, we certainly are a law and order state, and we uh, you can see that in all of our different policies. We back the blue. We have tremendous recruitment going on with our law enforcement, uh, but we can also be smart on some of these things and uh, and make sure we lock up those that we're we're afraid of and not just the ones we're mad at. All right, before we get to the famous lightning round, I have to ask, I, I've been very impressed with you from afar and you've been uh, very forthcoming in our conversation. You seem to have the background, demeanor, and record of a governor that might have national ambitions, could have national ambitions, could be attractive for a national ticket. So I'll, I'll ask it this way. Do you think a governor like you from flyover country would be a good addition to the Republican Party's ticket in 2024? Uh, well, absolutely. If you're talking about uh, Oklahoma values, you're talking about, uh, you know, hardworking, God-fearing Americans, uh, you find that in, uh, in, in what you're calling flyover country. So, uh, a absolutely. We'll put up our values and our freedom message and the way we've ran our state, our state against any other governor. All right. Governor Kevin Stitt, thank you. Let's do the lightning round. Number one, you were famously once called Meathead Stitt by the people over at PETA. So just for our friends at PETA, would you like to describe your favorite steak dinner to the to the listeners of Flower Country? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I love a good ribeye, and I think I actually declared that the uh, the state uh, steak uh, this past session. Uh, but yeah, that was a lot of fun grilling out hamburgers underneath that pita sign when they were trying to make fun of me, and we turned it. But this is important. the 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 whole message with that, the media asked me, "What would you say if somebody wanted to be a vegan?" And I said, "Listen, if you want to be a vegan, be a vegan. If you want to eat steak, eat steak. It doesn't matter in Oklahoma because we believe in freedoms." What is the top song in your music rotation right now that you're jamming out to? Oh man! <laughs> I mean, it's okay if you say um, it's okay if you say that it is the the titular song of the of the musical Oklahoma. If that's what it has to be for the governor of Oklahoma, it's what it has to be. <laughs> oh, you know, I listen to uh, a lot more podcasts than I do music anymore. When I do listen to music, it's uh, just more like praise and worship music, and but more uh, more podcasts. And I'm actually trying to learn Spanish this year, so I've been uh, I've been listening to these uh, uh, Spanish lessons uh, when I have some free time. All right, uh, what is your? But I'm a country music fan. Hank Williams Jr. I would go with all day long. All right, all right. Uh, what is your favorite activity to help you uh, relax and unwind from the duties of being governor of Oklahoma at the end of the day? You know, actually, I'm a pilot, and so I love flying. I've been flying since I was 16, so that's uh, that's kind of a, a hobby of mine. And then uh, uh, love getting out with my with my boys and, and uh, doing a little bit of hunting. So whether it's bird hunting, uh, deer hunting, elk hunting, uh, we love. It's just kind of fun being with the guys and kind of getting outdoors. Your security regime still lets you get behind the cockpit and uh, fly around Oklahoma. Uh, yeah, you know, they probably don't like it that much, but uh, I'm the governor, right? That's right. They work for you. That's right. All right. You are an Oklahoma State alum. 
but you had a bet with the governor of Texas this year over the OU Texas game. So I have to ask, is it Sooners or Cowboys in the Stitt household? Well, I went to Oklahoma State, so uh, it's Cowboys in the Sooner or in the uh, Stitt household, uh, but a little more neutral now as governor. I grew up in Norman, uh, a huge Sooner fan, so I enjoy going to that Red River game and, and winning those uh, barbecue bets off Governor Abbott when my Sooners uh, whip up on the uh, Longhorns. All right. Uh, for people who might be coming to Oklahoma, what is the number one recommendation you have for people? If you're coming to your state, what do you have to see? Uh, you know, over in Tulsa, we have the Gathering Place, which is a $500 million park. It was ranked in uh, USA Today as the number one new attraction, I think, in 2019, 2020. You got to see that. Uh, and then uh, Oklahoma City, kind of the ri- the new river uh, walk area, a lot like San Antonio uh, down in downtown Oklahoma City is just a uh, pretty, pretty special place as well. All right, Governor Kevin Stitt, thank you. You've been a terrific guest. We appreciate uh, hearing about what's going on in Oklahoma, and uh, uh, we'll, look, uh, we'll look for you to do uh, continue to do great things down the road. Appreciate your uh, participation today. Thank you. Thanks so much, Scott. All right, Governor, thanks. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Five-star reviews will help us keep making the content that you love. To find my latest television hits, columns, and other commentary, go to scottjenningsky.com. And you can also find me at Scott Jennings KY on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon. Ladies and gentlemen, make sure your seat backs and folding trays are in their full upright position. Cabin crew, please take your seats for landing and thank you for choosing Flyover Country with Scott Jennings.